G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast Summer Edition. And uh, we've actually got some footy to talk about with the AFLW getting underway at the weekend. We had the Big Bash League final, of course, on Saturday evening. We've got uh, matters of life, matters of pop culture to talk about, and the usual amount of uh, digressions and complete inanity, as I say. Very good morning to my co-host, Mark Fine. How are you, Fine? Good morning, and uh, looking forward to covering off on actual football today, because, of course, we've had the first round of AFLW. i tell you what I am looking forward to. What's that? A burger. And I really am. I fell asleep last night before I ate dinner. And? I'm starving. You didn't eat dinner? No. Have you ever done that? Where you've just been so tired? Uh, uh, not guess, not at that time of the day. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've been known to sleep in a bit, but not around dinner time. Oh, I fell asleep before dinner, so I've... And slept right through? Yeah, slept right through. So how long did you sleep? Oh, I fell asleep about 7.30, woke up at 6.30, so... 11 hours. Yep. Okay. So um, needed the sleep. All right, I've got a doctor you can look up if you need to, but uh, that gave you even more time. A doctor? No, yeah. I was just, just catching up on sleep. It was great. <laughs> well, how many days were you without sleep? But uh, that gave you even more time to dream of a sumptuous Andrews hamburger. Tell us all about them. Well... Gee, I wish I was dreaming about Andrew's hamburgers. It would have had me sated during my long sleep, but I will do the real thing and get a magnificent Andrew's hamburger today. And you know what I look forward to most in an Andrew's hamburger? The buns? No, the first bite. That first mm. bite, the, re- the reacquainting myself with pure beef, melted cheese, but not overwhelmingly so. And just the right combination of, as you say, crisp vegetables, fresh lettuce, fresh tomato. I'm not a fancy burger man. Mm. Tender meat patties, don't forget them. For me, oh, it's, it's look, they are, they're tender, but they've got that real grill taste to them. Look, what I enjoyed most about an Andrew's hamburger is the one that I loved last time which mm. was about three weeks ago, will be exactly the same first bite that I enjoyed this time. Well, I was going to say, unlike that uh, fast food establishment uh, originating out of the southern states of the United States, the last bite is still as uh, appealing as the first, which isn't really a... Um... The last bite is almost had with sort of a, a longing for another bite. I'm a probably one and a half burger man. I'm not somebody who will ever order two Andrews burgers because they're a good big feed. Well, maybe but, maybe they can check out the kids' menu there. Well, you can get two. You can get the double beef. I, I often get that when I'm really hungry. That's two of those succulent beef patties within one burger. Wherever, however, sorry, whenever, however you like their burgers, it's always at the same place. One forty-four Bridport Street in Albert Park. And that's not too far away from the locale of the the re 
invigorated and still premier building company in the region, West Point Properties, and that is Nick Spartel's West Point Properties. If you're looking to build or to renovate and you've got an inner city block of land just screaming out for the best, it's West Point. Point Properties, Nick Spartels. You heard the man. Uh, venture down to Albert Park, get yourself a hamburger, and then get yourself a house. All right, we've got a lot to get through. Let's do it. On Footyology, Newsfeed. All right, Finey. Well, I mentioned we actually do have some footy to talk about. AFLW kicked off on Friday evening a big round one, of course, the new... Newly expanded competition, 14 teams now and seven games to get through. Uh, we had some great crowds. Uh, we had a uh, couple of pretty good games, a couple of not fantastic games, to be honest, but uh, I think that was to be expected with some of the conditions that we played in. What were your highlights of Round 1 AFLW? Well, probably the great expectation for the four expansion clubs were tempered a bit. Now, I think this was to be expected. When I say tempered, they enjoyed a wonderful foray entry into the competition. St Kilda having a capacity crowd down there at RSEA Park in Moorabbin. was a great atmosphere there on Sunday afternoon. But all four of the expansion teams were defeated. Richmond faced a very strong Carlton side. Remember, they made the grand final last year. In front of 15,337 at Icon Park. Great rollout for the first game. West Coast, likewise, found it difficult in their first match of the competition. And that being said, their prospects, I think, are promising. St Kilda as well got jumped by the Bulldogs. And in a real struggle... Very difficult conditions. GWS just pipped a plucky Gold Coast. So all four of the expansion teams tasted defeat first up, but that's no cause for concern. They'll learn and adjust to the rigours of the higher standard for some of those girls. And also these teams have seen players come together from around the country and will take time to gel and to become a unified force. They really didn't have much luck with the conditions. Uh, a couple of games were okay, but uh, the GWS Gold Coast game, of course, at Blacktown played in uh, oh, torrential rain, very difficult, greasy conditions, and thus only one goal each. Um, still, uh, by the accounts of... I, that was one of the ones I didn't see, to be honest, but uh, the accounts of people who did see it said it was, uh, even though it was low scoring, very, very exciting finish there. Um, but wind was a, a factor in several of the games I saw. Casey Fields, when is wind not a factor at Casey Fields? But that was um, an exciting finish too. Melbourne uh, getting in front and then slipping behind against North Melbourne and then hitting the front in the last quarter and hanging on for a, a two-point victory. And um, the other game in which wind seemed to play a bit of a factor was the one at Collingwood in which West Coast made their debut. 6,000 rolling up there. Great, um, Isn't it great to see the suburban grounds revitalised too and given a, a fresh new look? You mentioned Moorabbin, but Victoria Park looked a, a picture as well, I think, with a, a reasonable-sized crowd there. I, I watched that game in full, and West Coast, the first quarter, they absolutely dominated, and I thought, oh, hello, we've not only got a new team, but we've got a new force. I tweeted as such, probably went a little bit early on that because they didn't 
score another goal for the rest of the game, whilst Collingwood really got on top and by the end um, were completely dominant. Ran out 27-point winners, 5-8, 38 to 1-5-11. They look like they might be pretty good, Collingwood. Uh, Shani Leighton uh, has improved a bit. I thought she was impressive for the Pies. Chloe Malloy. Is Leighton the netballer? She is. And uh, she played in the ruck and did particularly well. Kicked a, a lovely goal, I think her first goal. Chloe Malloy is a, a bona fide uh, AFLW star, and she was impressive. Steph Chiochi, the captain, played very well. Um, but the Eagles would have come away, and the Eagles have picked up, I think, eight or nine players from Fremantle. Of course, their sister, or not sister team, their rival in Perth, who have been in the comp for three seasons. But one of them, Dana Hooker, um, particularly impressive for them, um, and uh, they haven't got too much to worry about. I think they'll they'll be okay with that. Um, but you mentioned Moorabbin, fantastic um, images from down there with the crowds flocking back to uh, Moorabbin. I see the animal enclosure has been gentrified. It certainly has. <laughs> it's rather ironic. Yeah, the the ground has a different feel to it, but I tell you what. To have the gates effectively closed, that no one they reached capacity of eight thousand before half time. And yeah, and just on that, I, I reckon they could have got. I mean, the shots I saw, the, there was still seemed to be plenty of room. I reckon yeah. they could have squeezed a few more in. Obviously, OH and S, you get a, an official capacity there. That's not just in terms of how many people can fit into the area. <laughs> I tell you what. I went to Punt Road recently, took my daughter down there for training. And, of course, it's very different to how it was as a football ground, but there still are... You can actually go onto YouTube and see highlights of St Kilda Richmond in the late 50s played at the ground. I think I saw that, yeah. Forty-five to 50,000 people. Mm. I, I don't know... Obviously, there were no limits on how many people could go to these games. They simply sardine, sardine pressed them in... You know, flesh against flesh until literally, literally, you could fit not one more person in. The 8,000 there moved around freely, but there's also, um, there were sort of temporary toilets set up. Uh, there must be a, a, a formula for not only the room available to fans, but also the facilities available in terms of toilets, food, access, parking, etc. And the number that was reached was 8,000 and that number was met before half time with others still trying to get into the ground. So disappointing for them, but great for AFLW. It was very windy there as well. Mm. Now I was so impressed by the Bulldogs. They really use the ball very, very comfortable moving it by foot, passing the length of the ground. This is a team deep in development now. Remember, it was Footscray and Melbourne nominally that kicked us off and showed us exactly how good AFLW could be, even though that was a a game between the best of the best. Gee, they're an impressive side, the Western Bulldogs. I, some, I, I really think that they are one of the teams to beat this season. They've got some very good players. I mean, Ellie Blackburn, she's, I think, reasonably well-known now. Uh, one of their players, I, I remember noticing last year, Bonnie. Uh, it's Bonnie. Bonnie Too Good. Too Good, yeah. Yeah, she was. Um, early she was too good, let me tell you. A, a genuine target up forward. Keep, I keep wondering if she's related to John Too Good, the lead singer of She Had. 
who are from New Zealand. Probably not. Um, Izzy Huntington as well. She bit of uh, concern about her when she went down. Well, she's uh, wondering know, whether that was a knee. Well, she's before the age of nineteen. She had done two knees and broken mm. a leg. Yeah. So concern was justified, but she's fine. She seemed to be okay. They had a couple of good girls off the half-back line. Um, uh, look, I'm not sure of their names. I was watching the game, at the game, and obviously don't didn't have the benefit of the uh, TV commentary. Uh, Gogas or something along those lines, uh, a smaller defender was very impressive. For, for the Saints, their top draft pick, Patrikos, very fast, great ball winner. She did a lot of good work. Uh, interestingly, you know, St Kilda had two big forwards in Greiser and Sherlaw. Mm-hmm. And in the windy conditions, they really struggled. St Kilda showed as much endeavour, probably got as much of the ball as the Bulldogs. But, gee, in AFLW, usage is everything. And this AFLW Bulldogs team really do use the ball very well. Their kicking skills are developed, advanced virtually. Well, I thought the... Um Best game that I saw, anyway, was the last game of the round uh, over at Fremantle Oval between the Dockers and Cats. And that was neck and neck for all but about the last five minutes. And uh, final scores, the Dockers ran out 16-point winners, 6-8-44 to 4-4-28. The Dockers, I remember thinking this last year too, and they didn't get there, but they've got some seriously good players uh, Duffy up forward, four goals for them, and uh, she's a real live wire and really knows her way around the big sticks and really impressive for them. The Cats, uh, Cranston, pretty reasonable for them. Um, uh, the hyphenated girl, uh, Crockett Grills. Have you wondered whether Cranston is related to Brian Cranston, star from Breaking, of Breaking Bad? Bad? Well, um, Possibly not, given that he's American, but um, <laughs> no, while we're doing the word association thing. Um, uh, Webster I liked for the Cats, Cranston, uh, if I didn't mention her already. But it was a, I thought that was actually a pretty high-quality game, and um, there are a lot of sort of breaking out the back and uh, uh, foot races towards goals. But um, entertaining game, enjoyed that one, and five and a half thousand turning up at Fremantle Oval. So look, I mean we I know you want to touch on this later, this hardy annual about, you know, people um who aren't sort of predisposed towards women's football jumping on and getting the boots in uh, to some pretty easy targets. Uh you've got some thoughts on that. But I mean I would say this that it was round one, the conditions weren't ideal. And uh, as we keep saying now every season, in season number four, the skills are going to get better and better as, A, these existing players continue to train with uh, and are coached with good facilities, and, B, the next generations come through with the benefit of those facilities and, um, you know, training on uh, dung heaps and uh, in, you know, far-flung suburban Grounds without change rooms or decent facilities are a thing of yesteryear, and you will see the standard rise accordingly. Well, just have a look at the players that were drafted into the competition this year out of the TAC Cup and other high-grade underage competitions in other states. They are ready-made footballers who kick both sides of the body, use the ball well, have speed, have height, have power, 
and just like the boys that come into the, the AFL from the Tech Cup, the best of the best young players are footballers. Yeah. They're not converted from other sports. They're not great athletes. They are footballers. And there's noticeably fewer of those cross-code um, types in the competition now. That's right. They, they get noticed. ultimately are getting squeezed out by uh, girls who played football as their pre- premier sport from the age of 10, 11 onwards. All right. Well, that is AFLW round one. We'll uh, do a wrap-up of the AFLW every week, as we should. Uh, time to move on now to our AFLM. Some people absolutely go spear if you say AFLM, but uh, that's how you make the distinction. Uh, we've been reviewing three clubs is e- every week. Might be how you make the distinction. Well, I mean, I when, given that we've just talked about AFLW and we're previewing three more clubs, we have to uh, ensure that people realise it's the men's competition it's we're the talking AFL. about. So um, we've got six to go and another lot of three today. And I've gone with the um, three-tier system, one club from each. And that leads us to the following. We will start with uh, a club close to my... Heart, I guess you could say, Finey, and a club that's been known to drive me mad over the years, and I speak of the Essendon Football Club. Um, I'll throw it to you. How do you think the Bombers are going to go in 2020? I think they'll drop out of the eight. Now, that's a big statement to start off with. How will the Bombers go? There's been some concerns voiced about their build up to 2020 in terms of how many players have actually been fully fit on the track. I think that's a little bit of sort of December scuttlebutt. From what I gather, those operations and those clean-ups that were organised for prior to Christmas have been done. And I think that the club is well-placed to move on in 2020, round one, with a relatively healthy list. Relatively healthy. I am curious as to the changeover. The final year of John Worsfold before Ben Rutten takes over, is that a year in stasis in the minds of some players? I'll tell you who's got a bit of a shake-up, though, in the naming of the leadership group, was Zach Merritt. I, I was particularly surprised to see Zach out of the leadership group. What did you make of that? Um, yeah, I've, I've thought about this a bit. Uh, I don't know. Look, I think easy you know, to sort of take the club perspective. But I I just reckon people might have made a bit much of it. Look, I'd say this. They probably didn't help themselves by, in the press release, announcing it, basically ignoring who was out of the leadership group, which just leads to more speculation. Look, I don't think Zach... um, He's had his own issues with form at times. And, I mean, having said that, you know, he had a, a pretty good season last year. Um, but and won the best and fairest, in fact. But um, he a couple of concussions at times, which have put him back occasionally. Um, he's had you know the odd game where he's struggled to really um, you know assert himself when they've needed to. And I think players get a, a really different take on leadership sometimes than we do from outside, and perhaps even the coaches. I think there was definitely a feeling that. Uh, say Michael Hurley should come back into that group as he was voted back in. Um, the other thing about the leadership group is 
it's a pretty, you know, it's not so such a formal sort of rigid arrangement as some people would believe. I mean, just because you're not in the leadership group, if you're a senior player, it doesn't mean you can't pipe up and have a crack at of someone course, of when course. you need to. But, but just on a superficial level, maybe from an outsider's viewpoint, as you say, internally, I doubt that Zach Merritt will play much of a different role than he did last season. But mm. Devin Smith didn't play last year. Mm. He's elevated into a group. One could say at the expense of Zach Merritt. Yeah. Well, he's definitely a, a more assertive personality than Zach is. There's absolutely no question about that. And I think Dylan Shield. So is that assertiveness something that obviously was noted and in the two years that he's been at the club, he hasn't been in the leadership group? Does he need to be in the leadership group? Does Zach Merritt maybe need to be in the group to coax out of him whatever, you know, given that he's a more quiet type? Is he better off in or out of the group? Look, only the club knows that. But as you say, the talk around the way it was announced raised a few eyebrows because of Zach. How do you look at the makeup of the side and factoring in the fact that Joe Danaher may not play a big role again? Yeah, there's no doubt that. Well, that is a concern. I mean, you know, some uh, people would have you believe he won't even be playing until halfway through the season. That is a concern, um, particularly seeing now they've offloaded Mitch Brown, who. I thought um, was pretty decent value up there last year. I think um, I, I did have a chat uh, last week with Matt Guelphy, and um, he's an interesting young player. He could, I think, he sort of hopes to settle down into a, a midfield role. He's been used with some effect on the wing, but a bit of a spare parts player. But he, uh, like everyone, seems to really lauded the coaching work thus far of Blake Carousella, who's come back to the club. He said big influence already, and uh, the biggest influence is on their ball movement, which I think was a bit of an issue at times. They moved the ball too slowly. Essendon last year were a side that um, generated you know, much of its scoring off the half-back line, and um, people will tell you that's not a very sustainable way of playing, and they really need to improve that um, sort of forward pressure and capacity to lock the ball inside 50. So that's something they've been working on. I think generally they've been working on a more, yeah, like I said, quicker movement, but a, a more positive, uh, less hesitant sort of mindset. So I think that could pay off. Devin Smith, his return will make a huge difference. They really missed his tackling and in-close work last season. It's about balance, I think, with the Bombers. Um, look, overall, I don't think it'll take them that much to sort out the way they play. I'm a bit worried about the firepower up forward. And um, I'm a bit worried, to be honest, overall class, is there enough of it? I think they've got a lot of decent players. Have they got enough you know, excellent sort of star types? I wonder sometimes. But um, happy to be proven wrong. Do you think they'll make the eight? I think they're, uh, well, put it this way. If you say you think, if, if someone says to me they won't make the eight, I'm not going to go, oh, you're kidding. I, I think there's every chance they won't. I think there's every chance they will, but I see them as one of a cluster. In a, bra- in a bracket of teams that are, are fighting for those last two two or three spots. Uh, correct, and it's a very large bracket. So uh, hopefully I'm wrong on that one. Wouldn't how, be the first time. How about the, been talked about a bit there, Ruck situation. Is Draper ready to... Play AFL football, you know. To obviously, fit, uh, injury has kept him away. Is he ready to be part of the 
Best 22 at Essendon? Well, when he's fully fit, uh, he did his knee, I think, about a third of the way through last season. So could, you know, I mean, it's a big bloke doing a knee. It's not necessarily a, yep. an easy comeback. So that might take some time. On that score, though, I, I, don't, I quite like Andrew Phillips as a ruckman. And, I think um, that's a very good pickup. Yeah, no, I think it's a reasonable pickup too. And Tom Bell Chambers, well, you know, you've always got sort of fingers crossed with the, the old Belcho, but um, hopefully he's got a bit left in the tank. Uh, the other one on the recruiting front too, uh, Tom Cutler from Brisbane, and uh, decent reports about him. Expected to be a regular in the best 22. Yeah, we're, possibly we're, on a wing. Yeah, so and Jacob a, a, Townsend, rangy, a rangy wingman. Yep, and Jacob Townsend, the other one, and uh, some Tigers have sort of scoffed about that, but I think he could play a part too as part of a tougher, uh, sort of stronger body in midfield. And let's not forget, there was injury problems that far exceeded just Devin Smith and Joe Danaher. Orazio Fantasia was a great player in 2018, and yep. his return to fitness will be very important because he's he's more than just a forward to me. He he when he further when he goes further up the field, he's a good on baller as well. Very good footballer. Yeah, no, very very creative, and he'd uh, yeah really struggle with injury for most of last year, even when he was playing. So it'd be good to see him back hundred percent. So look, there's plenty of ifs and buts about the bombers, but you know if if things went okay, I can I can see them at least causing trouble. Now they've got one more spot to fill on their list, I believe, and are they looking at? Uh, an Indigenous footballer, I believe they're looking at an Indigenous footballer from uh, the same part of Australia and the same um, tribal background as Liam Jarrah. Now, I'm not quite sure what his name is, but they're they're considering him, and that will be a very interesting look-see because, look, we know they've had great success with the Tiwi Islander in MacTip, but this is... becomes an interesting look when you have it's, have somebody from a traditional tribal background. All right, well, let's move on to Gold Coast. And uh, I can see people rolling their eyes already, but uh, who did I speak to there? David Swallow, co-captain again this year with Jared Witts. And uh, just put your phone on silent, thank you. Um what are they looking at? Well, they've had two seasons that have been uh, pretty identical, really. Uh, three wins from the first five games in 2018 and then won one more for the rest of the season. Last year, it was three wins from the first four games, I think, lost the first by a point and then proceeded to lose 19 on end. The big plus about the Suns this year, Finey, is uh, their list retention. And for the first season in a number of years they haven't bled a whole stack of senior talent and in fact they've managed to re-sign uh, some senior players and hang on to some very promising up-and-comers they also of course had uh, numbers one and two in the draft with which they picked up Matt Rowell and Noah Anderson uh, who am I talking about in terms of the re-signings Ben King uh, Jack he's Lukosius. Isaac Rankin, Ben Ainsworth, Jack Bowes, all been re-signed. So uh, just talking to David Swallow, I mean, there really is, for the first time in a while, feeling that, okay, we have a core group of players here we're confident are at least going to hang around and build something. Um, How do you see them going? Yes. Remember the 
One Hit Wonders, yes. Uh, yeah, what was that song again? The Only Way Is Up. Okay. And for them... Is that what you were just looking up on your phone? No, I actually can tell you the name of that Indigenous player that Essendon, uh, very close to signing, is Nigel Lockyer. And he's from a traditional background, 22 years of age, but he's a key position player. 190 centimetres, very interesting prospect. All right, back on the Suns. So the Gold Coast Suns, look, not only is the only way up mathematically, obviously 18th tells you that there ain't no lower you can go, but the feeling definitely is different than in previous seasons for all those reasons you mentioned. The re-signing of the quality players, the longer-term commitment by their first two draft picks, probably encouraged by the AFL in various sort of backroom discussions to make sure that these kids don't come in and out of the club in a way that's not only not productive on the field, but very destructive off-field. So at last, I think we've got a situation where Stuart Dew, the coach, has some some room to move, some sort of building space and space and breathing space. So ultimately, what's important really for the club is not where they finish in 2020 in terms of the ladder, but where they finish in terms of a unified team and a commitment going forwards. And I think they're well-placed to do it. Almost, You know what I almost hope that they don't do is have a good start again because those last two seasons as disappointing as they were, they came on the back of positive starts. Mm. And there might be a sense of, here we go again, or we're setting ourselves up for a fall. So it would be nice to see the Gold Coast build up to uh, towards the end of the season with some form to take into the next year, rather than the last two years where they felt so flat at the end of round 22, having... I think between the two seasons, won one of their last 22 games. Something like that, yeah. It's very hard to rebuild and to keep momentum going. So maybe the sort of reverse of what's happened in the last two seasons where a slower start is met by a better finish would be best for them. I think in terms of how they play, um, they've, they've certainly tried to ply a high stoppage game. Um, and they actually did all right in that, statistically speaking, in terms of winning stoppages. I think they ended up fifth um, for clearances. But interestingly, and the differential's only 14th, uh, meaning that they don't have the physical strength to sort of stop other sides also winning plenty of clearances. And they bled um, like something that bleeds a lot <laughs> defensively too. Um, they conceded... Now, where's uh, oh, they concede on average twelve more inside fifties per game than uh, their opposition, which is a truckload. And of course, you're going to get scored again against most uh, more times than not, if that's the case. So, physical development will help that. AFL recruits. Uh, yeah, clubs. well, a couple that a couple that stand out: Brandon Ellis and uh, right, Hugh, Hugh Greenwood, Greenwood from I think, Adelaide. I think Greenwood really adds to their front half. Yep. Where they've got a couple of talls down there in Peter Wright, Ben King, and even Sam Day. This is more a mid-sized, what we would associate maybe with a, a Gunston-type size forward. A marking forward, but not somebody that is necessarily just a marking player. So also having impact on the ground as well. 
I think that's perfect for their forward line because it means that you've got a natural foil for either Wright or Ben King. Well, he's, he's also played plenty of good footy for Adelaide in the midfield group as well. And, and just to what I was addressing before, stronger midfield body will certainly help. Ellis, of course, is an interesting one. Now, he basically um, probably ended up playing his best footy for Richmond coming off half back as so many of their good players have. But uh, I could see him also being used a lot more in midfield too and, again, experience, stronger body. Do you see him bringing more than just himself to the club? I mean, he's been part of Richmond's powerful last three years, two premierships. Oh, in a cultural sense, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's what they need, isn't it? So yeah. A, a window into a successful club, and Ellis affords them that. Uh, just on that too, and, and we'll talk about them next week, but uh, I, I caught up with uh, Kane Lambert from Richmond during the week, and we were talking about that cultural stuff. And even in a short chat, you can really see how big an impact it's had on the way they all approach their footy. So, no, I think that's a very good point. Don't forget Anthony Miles already there, who had that culture instilled in him as well, and was a, a very sort of solid citizen to begin with anyway. So, yeah, look, we're, we're not obviously not going to be predicting too much in an on-field sense, but I think, uh, well, we've talked about culture. I think they've stemmed the bleeding, and I think they're probably in a more positive place now than you would have said last year. Where do you see them finishing? One word. 17th or 18th. Uh, yeah, I, I'm prepared to say 18th, but uh, I think it'll be a more positive 18th if that's possible. And they are well led by Jared Witts, aren't they? Uh, and uh, David Swallow. They're yeah. two very fine gentlemen. All right, uh, final club in our wrap-up, and it's your club, the Saints. Uh, last year finished 14th, nine wins, 13 losses. New coach, of course, Brett Ratton, took over for the last, uh, was it five, six games, and uh, they split them 50-50. Of course, the big story with the Saints, finally, is a truckload of senior experience recruits giving the... Uh, the Saints are a whole new look. It is a very different look, isn't it? They can expect, St Kilda supporters can well expect six new players for round one made up of five recruits. Do not be surprised to see all of Howard, Hill, Ryder, Zach Jones and Butler make their debuts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd, I would have thought so. By the so. way, Paddy Ryder's looking good. He's certainly lost a few kilos, mm-hmm. which I think he needed to do. And also Max King. Yep. So that's a big change. Now, St Kilda supporters have to temper the excitement of... And it's very exciting when you do see new players because it, it gives you a big shot of optimism. They have to temper that with an understanding that football teams now are, are, are single units. We're not talking about just filling positions here, but teams have to gel and they have to play together and they have to temper the excitement of the new players with the understanding that putting that many new players in a team, and I think you've pointed this out previously, uh, is a double-edged sword that requires patience from the fans. St Kilda also welcomed back Dylan Roberton. Now, match simulation this week, he played three quarters and was his reliable intercept marking self, almost generaling the back line. He looked very good, they said. Also, in that simulation, St Kilda said their best play was Daniel Hannabury. So, mm. all things being equal, they are really two recruits. Hannabury good at the end of last season. Carlisle gets a pre-season. And Geary's back as well. So, there's a lot of internal improvement, but a lot 
of water to go under the bridge before they are a gelling, unified AFL team. Well, I'd say there's another factor there too in a, a group of players who I reckon we would say at the end of last season had arrived as players, uh, certainly compared to what they'd shown previously. And um, Rowan Marshall, we wrapped up his 2019, was terrific, and you'd expect him to go on with that. Hunter Clark, very highly rated draftee, who really slotted him well at halfback. And the other one, and it, it, I mean, obviously you're aware of it, but plenty of people wouldn't be, Josh Battle, who really settled down uh, as a key defender. There's the big pluses from 2019 with the three players you mentioned, plus one other, putting their hands up to be 150-plus game players for St Kilda. Battle may well be used back and forward this season with Carlisle and Howard and Roberton and the departure of Bruce. Battle, who started as a forward, may well return there. Add Callum Wilkie to that group. I think the first player, they say, for something like a quarter of a century to play 22 games for St Kilda in his debut season. Really? Yep. <laughs> so he played every game for the Saints and looks like a pretty rock-solid half-back flank, back-pocket type of player. Ben Long, who came to St Kilda from Footscray in the VFL as a half-back flanker, has been returned there to give them run off that half-back line. So there will be a different look to the team in a number of ways. But St Kilda... I expect St Kilda, in terms of ladder position, I think that they can be one of those teams in the mix for a lower spot in the eight. That will be very dependent on how they step out early on in the season because to make the eight, you can't get behind the eight ball. So this uh, need to mesh as a side needs to happen from round one against North Melbourne. I'm tipping St Kilda to finish ninth. Um, Yeah, ditto for me, not about ninth, but I've got them as one of that group pushing for one of the last couple of spots in the eight. And uh, you'll look, if things went right, maybe higher than that. But uh, yeah, look, double-edged sword. You've got to give those guys time to gel as a unit. But um, certainly in terms of the vibe created to uh, appropriate the castle, um, I think things are, are looking very positive indeed. One question I'd like to ask you, I'm maybe too close to the flame to answer this because I want it to work. How many games do you see Marshall and Ryder playing together in the ones? Do you think that that can work or it's one or the other? No, absolutely. absolutely. When I say one or the other, it's Marshall or Marshall and Ryder. No, I'd I'd expect both of them to be part of their best side and play all season. uh, Because I think they're both pretty versatile. I think, you know, in fact, I think Marshall is the number one ruckman. But Ryder... And I'm not a big rap as a rule for uh, Ruckman as de facto forwards, but I think Ryder is one of those who has shown plenty of times that he can do that. In fact, he's played full seasons in the past at both centre-half back and centre-half forward. You know, So he can do it, and he's proven he can kick goals. So I, I think that one works very comfortably indeed. And as a former uh, Don, I, my feeling is that he's a very good kicker goal. Is that correct? Yeah, he's a lovely kick. Lovely kick of the footy, particularly. Well, he won't feel. He'll feel very one out of St Kilda. <laughs> let me tell you. Particularly uh, round the body, a beautiful snap at goal. He's got a nice relaxed kicking style. All right, that is uh, three more clubs reviewed. We've got three to go. Who are they? Well, you just work it out, and we'll get on to them next week. Now uh, we've got to wrap this segment up, but quickly would be remiss of us not to talk uh, cricket. So let's touch. 
on the BBL final, and uh, I'll be touching on this a bit later on as well, so we won't give away too much, but um, credit where it's due, the Sydney Sixers won the final, a rain-abbreviated game, unfortunately. Credit where it's due, I turned on the TV and they Curators. were playing. Yeah. Everything was called off during the day. Yeah. And I'm talking about everything. No, they did pretty well. 12-over game in the finish. And uh, always going to be tough for the Melbourne Stars once the Sixers Sixers rattled on five for 116. Josh Felipe, 52 from just 29 balls. Uh, four fours, three sixes. Quick cameo from Steve Smith and uh, Jordan Silk at the end. So that was a very imposing tally. Um, uh, Ruff, uh, who's been terrific for the Stars, Horace Ruff, uh, unfortunately chose a bad time to have an ordinary evening, none for 36 of his three. In reply, the Stars uh, really went south from the very first over when Marcus Stoinis came out, hit a four and a six, and then was dismissed on the fourth ball of the innings. Glenn Maxwell, LBW for five. Is and, that out? Yep. Definitely out, yep. And uh, Peter Hanscom, a comical run out um, for six, and the Stars were done and dusted. We're never going to pick it back from there. But, look, to be honest, I know they've sort of been the pace setter, but I think the Sixers had the best team, didn't they? Gee, you've got a T20 attack featuring Nathan Lyon, Josh Hazelwood, and Steve O'Keefe. <clears throat> I reckon that's pretty handy, and had a, a very handy batting lineup as well. So, uh, look, disappointing finish for the Stars. Boy, have they, um, I said I will touch on this, but they um, their finals record now, we've had nine seasons. In eight of them, they have made finals and they have now lost three, uh, well, grand finals, if you like, and um, five semifinals. Uh, they just cannot uh, take a trick when it comes to the pointy in the Stars. What do you make of it? They would feel that they lost this season at the back end of the season and then certainly in the first final. That's where their damage was done. This was a sort of a free shot at the stumps because I'm sure during the day they didn't expect to play. Mm. And to that end, I felt that the Sixers were the worthy winners. Hearing Moses Enrique speak afterwards, I know that, and you'll talk about this later on, I know that crowd interest tends to unfortunately not build up in this competition but sort of fade away. But gee, it meant a lot to him. Mm. It really meant a lot to Moses. I think he's had a big year. He's become a father and putting things in perspective, probably realising his own international career has had a full stop placed on it. Then this was just very important to him. And I get a sense that they were a real team. You can say what you want about maybe how we view teams in the BBL, but they themselves take it pretty seriously. Mm. And I've got a bit of an insight into that with the interview of Moises Enrique. So to that end, I went from being fairly, you know, uncommitted when it came to watching the game. I'm not a Stars fan or a Renegades fan particularly, to being very pleased that the Sixers actually won. Yeah, no, which, is, which is an odd odd way to look at things from my Victorian bias. He's an impressive guy on Rex. Um, all right, just quickly, you wanted to touch on the Under-19 World Cup. Look, I've watched the entire competition, and it had a fantastic finish. What happened? India, the red-hot favourites, were uh, won the toss and batted against Bangladesh, finally had some seemingly really good weather in South Africa. It's an amazing place, Pontius Clear skies, 
yet somehow in the afternoon it always manages to rain. So there was a, an over or two taken away from the final. There was a recalculation, but basically they were cruising at three for 145. Bangladesh. India in oh, their India. first innings. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jaywal, who's been the star of the competition, 88 not out. He holed out and then Calypso, not Calypso, Calypso Indian cricket. They ended up being all out for 172, I think. Mm. I mean, they lost seven for 26. Yeah. It was extraordinary. So stars like collapse. Including, now, you know the third umpire that's used for runouts and stumpings? Yes. There was a decision that went for five minutes, but it wasn't a runout or a stumping per se. Well, what? it was sort of a runout. What was it? Uh, one of the batsmen, um, Jairol, Played the ball out into covers, called for a single, and Akarkal, Ankarkal turned his back on him. He'd walked out of his crease, so then the guy that's run out is the person who gets back to the crease last. Oh, it was to see which batsman was closer. It was to a the... dead heat. They yeah. raced each other. <laughs> when they realised they were both out of their crease, they became very selfish, and they both dived for the crease. It was very funny to watch. <laughs> But it took five minutes to sort out. In the end, Bangladesh had to get, after a revised chase, 170 to win, and they did it. And Bangladesh... How many wickets down? Three or four. They, yeah. In other words, they did it well. And how many overs did they have to... They, they I think, had 47, but they did it in 42.1. Oh, wow. Okay. So this is the first ever competition won by Bangladesh. Yeah, no, in a cricket, in a sort of big picture context, it's huge. A, a very significant moment. And you know what's probably most significant, that their f- attack was led by speed and medium pace. They've got a great young bowler, bowler called Shoreful. So it's not as expected finger spin or leg spin that won them the competition, but medium pace, swing and genuine pace. I think they're going to be fairly competitive in years to come. Well, there you go. It's uh, uh, good for the game, no doubt about that. I think uh, cricket was the real winner, Finey. Uh, there's enough news, chock full of news this week. Um Enough sporting news. I think it's time. We just uh, mused on life. Let's do that. Life Hacks. Building a better world. Okay, Life Hacks time, Finey. Uh, kick us off. I'm going to start off with Bangladesh. Because their win in the Under-19 World Cup made me think about an extraordinary country. And I ask you these these two questions. Do you know what the size of Bangladesh is in relation to Victoria? Uh, no. Two-thirds. Approximately, Bangladesh in, in total square kilometres is roughly two-thirds the size of Victoria. Population? 164.7 million. What? 164.7 million people. No, I heard people. you. It was sort of like... I know. A... <laughs> I'm saying, and I repeated it because it is... Uh, it is incredible. So next time you're worried about being caught up in traffic here and saying that we're getting crowded in, think about Bangladesh, the country, and the dynamic of living in Bangladesh. Boy, is that a world apart from how we live. Do you know your earliest impressions of something tend to stick? And every t- any time anyone says Bangladesh, I think of the concert for Bangladesh yeah. after, uh, what was it, shocking floods? Floods. Or, they've, um, they've had, they, they are... 1971 I'm talking about here. You know, they got independence from India in our lifetimes. Yeah. They're on a peninsula and subject to terrible flooding, terrible earthquakes. Really one of the, I guess, 
not your not your number one destination on the tourist map. An amazing country, and they love their cricket, and they've got plenty to celebrate today in Bangladesh. Yeah, no, well done, and uh, uh, yeah, beautiful part of the world from what I hear. Uh, all right, I'm going first. <laughs> crowded part of the world from what it I doesn't work. matter. It's not beautiful. No, of course not. But from what I calculate, fairly crowded. Um, all right, I uh, dialed back the clock on Saturday evening, and I was. It was one of those fortunate occasions. I was bunkered down, not expecting to be doing much other than the usual, you know, watching sport on TV and fighting with people on Twitter. Uh, when I got a call from a, uh, a an old schoolmate of mine, John Eggleton, who um, I hadn't heard from for some time, and I thought, ah, oh, good of him to give me a ring. I rang him back and he said... I must uh, ask, Eggleton's nickname at school? Three guesses. Eggy? Just Egg. Uh, but a great old mate of mine. I've known him for longer than 40 years. And um, he rang and said, uh, I've got a spare ticket for uh, a gig at the Forum featuring Painters and Dockers and the Sunny Boys. Would you like to go? And I said, would I what? So I um, slapped on some uh, more slightly more respectable attire and hot-footed it to the Forum, uh, which is a great venue for bands too. Uh, really good acoustics, as you'd expect. And gee, it was a great night, Finey. It was uh, Painters and Dockers. I know Paul Stewart. I used to work with him on The Sun, recently been awarded an Order of Australia for his welfare work in Timor. Um, and uh, Painters and Dockers, always great fun, rifled through uh, most of their big hits, uh, Nude School, um, you're going home in the back of a divvy van and the boy who lost his jocks on Flinders Street Station. Um, <laughs> they, they, they got a great brass section. It was They were fantastic. And then the Sunny Boys, the original lineup, the Oxley Brothers, uh, Richard Bergman on lead guitar, Bill Bilson on drums, and they were fantastic. Now, people familiar with this, Jeremy Oxley was in a, a terrible spot uh, just a few short years ago, um, really, really not well uh, mentally or physically, and uh, he is definitely back on the horse, turned in a great frontman performance, and they were fantastic, and they played all the songs you'd expect the Sunny Boys to play, Happy Man, Alone With You, and my favourite, Finey, Show Me Some Discipline. Jeez, I love that song, a real tough song from 1983. It was a great gig. Um, it was, as you'd expect, sort of a meeting of um, uh, sort of broken down rock fans of the uh, early to mid eighties, where you know most of us were in our sort of forties, fifties region, and I just kept bumping into people uh, I either knew or people, and I'm happy to say this, were familiar with footyology, Finey. And, Lovely. Uh, a heap of, no, seriously, a heap of people came up and said, I love footyology, love Finey, uh, put up with you. Um, <laughs> no, no, they were better than that. Uh, and it was it was fantastic. And actually, not just us, people, strangers sort of talking to each other everywhere and comparing notes on old gigs they'd been to. Um, I love those reunions. They're fun. Uh, so it was a fantastic night, really good show, and uh, yeah, I've been playing a lot of Sunny Boys stuff in the uh, 48 or so hours since. Thank you, Egg, for putting a smile on Rowan's dial. Yeah, it doesn't happen often. All right, you're up. Number two, the police. The band or the force? The police force. Okay. A bit of a trying week for the police in the media because Lawyer X speaks and oh God, isn't that dragging on? It certainly is, and you know, it, it opens up 
a, a side of policing that I think the public and some members of the public like to point out, you know, will we'll point their finger at the Victorian police force and talk about impropriety and at the highest level and, you know, under their breath, have a go at the coppers. So I suggest most people that do that have a reason not to like police and that's their own problem. Now, I had a an interaction with the police during the week and they were fantastic. Didn't impound your car again, did they? No, but they could have, sort of. I... Again, I had registration problems because I had only paid for one third rather than the whole period. So they gave you the chassis and... (laughs) No, but it turned out that I'd run a few days over, a couple of days over, and my car was unregistered and I was pulled up. Now, the fine is a hefty fine and they were very understanding because I said, look, this is very unlike my wife who pays the bills and I contacted her immediately And the officer said, look, if you can send me a screenshot of any mitigating circumstances, then I'll consider whether or not to impose the fine. Now, the fine is over $800. Wow. And as it happens, the information on the screen, we paid it immediately, paid the balance immediately, but the information said that that they had sent out a notice to our address and that the notification had been returned because that address didn't exist. And whilst I wait and look at the mail nervously, I think that explains why it wasn't paid because no notification was received. But the fact is he was extremely understanding, as was his partner, a female police officer, and they were working with me to try and avoid this $800 fine. I thought that you can't ask any more from a young police officer than that level of understanding and also to appreciate that there are sometimes reasons why you've transgressed. And I think the whole thing was handled really well. Thumbs no, up. Well done. And uh, I can't believe you know, exactly the same thing happened to me. I've, I've had... Um I've had this happen to me, and I can't, just can't remember why it lapsed, but I was completely oblivious to it. And uh, same thing, got pulled over and uh, and said, oh, you know, and they let me, I got away with it, uh, thankfully. They let me sort of show, oh, that's right, I, no, sorry, I'd paid it, but it, like it hadn't shown up in the system yet. And uh, they were able to, as long as I showed them a receipt well, you know, through the bank. Yep. Um, unfortunately, however, finally, this happened to be my son David's first day of high school. And so his introduction to his high school in front of all his new colleagues was uh, his old man getting pulled over by the cops. That's a great look, isn't it? And he hasn't really ever forgiven me for that. But no, no, well done. You, you love seeing good community policing and a bit of empathy and compassion. So well done, Victoria Police. My second one is just a couple of quick observations on... Um, uh, sh- uh, shopping or customer service. Uh, I had to. I had uh, need to go to both the bank and the post office during the week, so uh, I uh, gritted my teeth and headed off about two hundred meters in the car to Chadston Shopping Centre. Somehow found a park, which uh, was perhaps a good sign of things to come. Now, just quick observation on banks. Um, I try to do, and they want you to do all your banking online or on the phone and not actually show up. Uh, Couldn't be avoided this time, so I'm with the ANZ. And I must say, this really threw me, and I've noticed it a couple of times now. You know, in the old days, 
going into a bank. It was like the epitome of an easy to understand and ordered system, wasn't it? There's a you know you fill out your forms. There's an obvious queue. You get in the queue. A teller becomes available. Bang! You go to the teller. Oh no, not like that anymore, Finey. I walk in and there's this queue. This sort of group of about eight, nine people just milling aimlessly around at the front. And I'm thinking, well, how, who's next? How do you know who's next? Well, they have a, um, I don't know what the, like a, I'm just trying to think of, of what you'd call it, but someone who comes out and greets you and, and asks what you're doing and then they sort of uh, funnel you through appropriate stages. They have, and I know what that position is, a facilitator. Okay, well, interesting. Anyway, guy, very helpful. I told him what I needed to do and he said, oh, yes, take a seat and we'll have someone with you. And other people who just had simple banking transactions were directed towards, yes, two machines inside the bank where you could do it without having to deal with a a teller. And uh, look, at I mean, I'm sure they've investigated this and it works and it's probably more uh, saving of time, but it just it, it confused me, Finey. I'm easily oh, confused. It's confusing. The banks now are, as you said, it used to be a an orderly process. If you, if you wanted to rob a bank today, you'd have nowhere to point the gun. Maybe that's the aim of the game. But would you have somewhere to point the gub if you were Woody Allen? Maybe you'd have no one to correct your letter until the facilitator pointed you in the direction of the letter of the sort of a you know, hold-up letter corrector. But there's a, a, a couch here, a seat there, a person standing behind something here. I'm not quite sure. It's it's sort of like being in a forest full of toadstools and mushrooms and and bushes and trying to work out which mushroom or toadstool I belong I belong at. I'll tell you this much. I've got no doubt that you will be able in 5 years time you'll be at the beach and there'll be somebody sitting on a towel, somebody having a swim and somebody eating an ice cream and that'll be the Commonwealth Bank. <laughs> That's what it's got to. It'll be a lot more scenic. Now, the second half of this, uh, my uh, first, no, second, sorry, life hack is uh, the post office. Now, um, I don't know about other people's experience, but I reckon every time I've been to the post office, enormous queue. Uh, you stand in a queue a long time because every person in front of you seems to have 500 bits of mail or an incredibly complex transaction. So, Or they're buying a Christmas edition of somebody's glasses or something. You know, it's also a shop. <laughs> so I walked in sort of expecting to uh, be annoyed and sort of counselling myself appropriately. And what do you know? There was literally no queue. And I went and sort of stood vaguely near the desk and someone gestured to me, here, sir, here, sir. And I thought, what is happening here? Anyway, I went up to the counter. I thought, oh, here we go. Here's the next bit. I needed some ID certified and I needed to send something registered post. I thought there'll be a problem with uh, the document I've produced. No problem. Stamped it, signed it, dated it, all done. Registered post. No problem, sir. Use this envelope. Uh, put the address here. Blah, 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 quoted me the price. I was in and out within two minutes, finally. Uh, absolutely overjoyed with my uh, more recent uh, transaction with Australia Post. So congratulations to you, people at Australia Post. Uh, it was a far less painful experience than I'd expected. But your post office is much more now, isn't it? I mean, it's a shop. 
because you buy things there. Yeah. But they do a whole lot more than just the like mail. Some of, them, some of them do dry cleaning, don't they? Well, well, that's the thing. I mean, you, you go in there. I, I, the last time I was at the post office was to get my son his tax file number, oh, have yeah. him registered. You know what I'm going to do? I'm actually going to do this. I'm going to go down to the local post office and take two pieces of bread, some ham, cheese and tomato, and say, is this the post office? He'll say, yes. And I'll say, you do toasted jaffles now, don't you? <laughs> and just hand him a jaffle, hand, hand him my toasty. And they'll take it and I'll say, would you like fries with that? <laughs> only if they are only if they are the agent to do so. Or Mick Australia Post. Um, all right, your final one. Okay. Obviously, there's a whole lot of people out there that are, are either incredibly... Um, paranoid, they're germaphobes, they're fretting about their own lives. Now, the coronavirus is a genuine danger. It, it, it is an epidemic, a, a pandemic, a whatever demic we're up to. But it's sort of epicenter is Wuhan in China. And from what I understand, numbers have plateaued. And in fact, the last plane load of Australians that landed here were all given the all clear and didn't have to go through Christmas Island, they're A-OK. Which makes me wonder why there is now this proliferation of thousands of people was people wearing face masks in Melbourne. We don't have an epidemic or a pandemic here. It's been well contained. If any country is well placed to stop the spread of a virus, it's Australia, given that our borders are isolated and secured. And this neurotic rush to by face masks and on a current affair tonight, the rush for hand sanitizers, you know, the gel you put on your hands mm. to keep germs clean, shelves being cleared of hand sanitizers, face masks, and whatever else somebody relates to saving them from the coronavirus. But really, people, you know, chicken little, sky falling in. Heard the story? Read it if you haven't. I, th- I think you might see a bit more of that as our air quality declines. I mean that we had that sort of pea super the other day. Uh, this was not this was absolutely coronavirus related. You knew that? I'm I I, I knew it. I, okay. I, I'm not going to go any further but okay. I knew it. Okay. All right. Now I'm sure you have your ways of detecting why people were wearing And certainly the hand sanitizer blitz as reported by the ever reliable ACA. Mm. Uh, was totally coronavirus related. Was that before or after the exclusive interviews with the Married at First Sight contestants? It was between that and Sea Princess Cruise Lines. Let's take you on a walking walking um, expose of the biggest cruise liner ever to come to Australia that just happens to be coming in three weeks with seats or, or berths still available. Cutting edge current affairs. Uh, final life hack for me, and uh, just doing this one on the spur of the moment. Is there anything sadder than a former politician having lost all relevance, desperately trying to retain it and prepared to go to any lengths, no matter how demeaning? Can I guess? Yeah, go on, have a guess. Tony Abbott? No, no. Um, the depths of depravity this man has plumbed makes Tony Abbott look absolutely dignified. Who is it? Mark Latham. Oh, yeah. He, he really... Oh, he no. Will, okay. he, will, he will drop pants for dancing with uh, has-beens. I'm sorry. This is just... I, I'm seriously actually feeling sorry for him. This is a man who was leader of the Labor Party within 
you know, I don't know, 100,000 votes or something of becoming Prime Minister in, in 2004 and spat the dummy when he didn't win and, and bailed out of politics not six months later and uh, has basically completely traded in all his so-called principles and gone in to bat, not just to the opposition politically, but uh, the sort of far-right extremist uh, political bent in this country will jump on any sort of... Um, uh, what's the word, controversial bandwagon uh, as long as it's sort of anti-PC, uh, anti-immigration, anti-progressive. So, and and he's on, he's on Twitter and, okay, I'm on Twitter too, so I can't really point the finger there, but I was just thinking uh, in his latest sort of sad little trolling effort, like, and he's reduced to trolling people like me, Finey. Uh, and uh, I thought, well, you know, John Howard, I may not have agreed with his politics, but uh, you'd never see him doing something like that. He's got a bit more self-respect. So here was Mark Latham. Um, he tweeted some... What was the thing he tweeted about? It was a pathetic sort of, you know, ridiculous generalisation about... Uh, oh, that's right. Yeah, it rained a lot in Sydney. Therefore, how can they be talking about climate change? It was one of those stupid ones. And this is a guy that might have been Prime Minister. So... Uh, a media colleague of mine, Benny Jones, had a, a crack at Latham on that. Um, I responded with something about it's not even quality trolling. And Latham said, oh, look, there's someone with a, a, a few followers. Let's see if I can get some attention. So he's gone through my timeline, found a tweet of mine about AFLW, the West Coast Collingwood game, and he's gone on the uh, women's football's crap, they don't even score. This is a guy from Sydney who wouldn't know one end of a footy from another to start with. And I just looked at his tweet about the women's football and I thought, this is just sad, mate. Like, everyone knows you've lost the plot. Everyone knows you know nothing about footy. Don't really know a lot about politics these days either. You're just desperate for attention and you don't mind how you get it. So... Unlike me, fine. I couldn't even be bothered coming back at him. I just thought, no, that's exactly what he wants to, you know, get some of his desperate numbnut followers to to attack me. So I, I just ignored it, and I'd like to say I did that a bit more. But in this case, it was pretty genuine because it's just like it's sad to see someone who was sort of that high in the nation's consciousness become such a complete and utter parody of himself and. Mark, you know, go and get some help and and just retire gracefully and and well, that's uh, not that's not happened or going to happen. Well, right? regain some self respect because you're pretty uh, you're a pretty sad specimen at the moment. Just on political retirements, is it Richard Di Natale? Yes, has stepped down, stepped down as leader of the Greens. Now, look, I'm no Greens voter, mainly because of their stance on fishing, but. Um, I'm certainly a big fan of Richard Di Natale, who I met on a couple of occasions, interviewed on a couple of occasions, and it was his driving support for RecLink that really saved a magnificent organisation that was being intentionally ignored and had funding cut by both major political parties. It was thanks to the Greens, Richard Di Natale, that that funding was not cut or returned, actually, because it was cut at one point in time, and Recklink was able to continue in their all-important work helping marginalised Australians. But uh, former VFA... Yep, uh, played for Northcote. Yeah, and a really good bloke, and I'm so pleased for him that he gets out of politics with a reputation, I think, that remains strong, enhanced by his time in politics, to spend more time with his young, growing family. And to Richard Di Natale, 
politicians get a black eye, but he's one person that believes, and certainly not a fan of your party necessarily, that you were very good for Australia. Yep, no, here, here, and uh, just one other observation very quickly, his replacement, Adam Bant, already after uh, oh, not five minutes in the job being beset upon by the News Corp uh, goon squad trying to fix him up in various columns and news stories. Uh, what a pathetic organisation News Corp is. All right, there's enough life hacks for this week. I think it's time we step back in time, finally, and uh, had a listen and a look and a natter about some of the best music, movies and TV of years gone by. Vinyl and Video. Pressing rewind on our favourite music, movies and TV. Okay, where are we going with vinyl and video this week? Well, finally, uh, I do like my 80s, uh, well, in some things, and uh, I thought we hadn't chose this year, we've chosen the year either side of it, but we hadn't talked about 1986, so I thought we'd go there uh, in a life sense. We both turned 21, which had probably meant a lot less when it finally came around than it had. 10, 20 years previously. We were in our primes. Uh, it was the end of St Kilda's run of three consecutive wooden, wooden spoons. spoons. Yes. So, uh, Fondly he- remembered. Heady, heady days for Saints supporters. All right, let's start with music. What was happening in music in 1986? Well, some great albums. Uh, really good. I will always remember the early to mid-80s as a great period in Australian music, particularly. And we're talking about the Sunny Boys. But um, big year for albums, Australian albums. Well, here's three or four, uh, actually. One of them is my number one pick, and some people might know where I'm going with this. But some big Australian albums of 1986. Uh, Highlights of a Dangerous Life by the Johnnies. Of course, Injun Joe and Showdown and uh, that sort of cowpunk sound. Uh, I love the Johnnies. The Howling, The Angels, a uh, arguably the Angels' most sophisticated album. They used um, keyboards and some brass on that. Uh, very, can't take any more, I think, was a single off that. A massive album, Finey, and this was a, a bit of a game changer, and I almost chose this album, uh, Human Frailty by Hunters and Collectors. Uh, Say Goodbye, of course, the big hit off that. Great album. I think easily their best album. Uh, Internationally, a couple of caught my eye. A bit more niche, perhaps. Uh, The Smiths, The Queen Is Dead. Pretty big album by them. Huskadoo, one of my favourites, released Candy Apple Grey, uh, which was their biggest seller. Don't Want to Know If You Are Lonely was the single off that. And another favourite album and favourite band of mine, Finey, XTC released Skylarking, which uh, a lot of hardcore XTC fans say is their best album. And another favourite album of mine by a big band, R.E.M., and uh, the album Life's Rich Pageant, which is my favourite R.E.M. album. In the end, though, Finey, I couldn't go past one of my all-time favourite bands and a far less noisy affair than uh, a lot of stuff I listen to. I love this band. I love virtually everything they've done and still play them all the time. And I'm talking about The Church. And this was the album which preceded the Monster Starfish album, which uh, sort of broke them worldwide. Um, Of course, uh, this is a couple of years before that, 1988, that came out. And this album, like so many things The Church did after their first couple of albums, just didn't get enough attention 
in their own country uh, whilst being quite big in Europe. But I love this album. I actually would put it on a par with Starfish. Uh, songs people may know off it, Myrrh, my f- not only my favourite church song, but arguably, or definitely my top five songs of all time. Columbus, uh, Tantalised, which is a bit of a rocker with brass in it, Already Yesterday. This is a fantastic album, uh, very lush production, um, great playing, uh, beautiful lyrics, uh, absolutely love this album. And if you look, you know, if your knowledge of the church is restricted to um, Under the Milky Way, Starfish, Almost With You, whatever, give this album Heyday a listen. It is a ripper, and that is my album of 1986. You're up. My album of 1986 is by one of my all time favourite bands. I guess on the surface, some people might have thought they were a bit of a novelty act, but they were anything but from the west coast of the United States playing, what would you call it, rockabilly punk, goth punk, the name of the band, The Cramps, ah, and yeah. an absolute favourite of mine, lead singer Lux Interior, the lead guitarist, a great female guitarist known as Poison Ivy or Poison Ivy Roshak, and the drummer, Harry Drumdini. Now, they were consistent members of the band, and there was often a fourth or fifth member playing bass guitar and other various guitars, steel guitars, and depending on what the song required. In 1986, they released the album that had possibly their two most recognisable hits on it, and one of them is one of my favourite songs of all time. The name of the album, A Date With Elvis, which is confusing in and of itself because Elvis Presley released an album called A Date With Elvis, but that was the sort of irreverent band they were. The lesser-known hits on the album, now don't be too um, caught up with the names of their songs because that's why they had a fair bit of a novelty feel about them, mainly the naming of their songs. So um, Hot Snatch, My Hot Snatch Jazz or Hot, <laughs> Hot Snatch Rhythm, was a good song, as was one word, Kiss My Ass, or Kiss My Ass, and that's the only song ever that Poison Ivy does vocals on. But the two hits from the album was Can Your Pussy Do The Dog? Oh yeah, I have heard that. And my absolute favourite, a real rockabilly, great sound to it, great punk rockabilly guitar feel, What's Inside A Girl? And the words of What's Inside a Girl are fantastic as well. Again, a little bit of fun. And if you haven't heard What's Inside a Girl, as Molly would say, do Do yourself a a favour. It really is a great song. All right. Now, I must admit, they are one band I've always known of but not really heard much of. So uh, I will. I love the cramps. They formed in 1976 and only the death of Lux Interior, their their lead singer, and and basically the, the... Tour de, the power, you know, the tour de force of the band. He passed away in 2009, and it was only his passing that saw the band stop touring and, and disband. All right, there you go. The Cramps, uh, another different selection from you, Finey. Um, let's talk movies. Now, uh, another pretty good year. This was probably the apex of my movie-going career, I think, in terms of the cinema. I was 21. I, I was 
uh, in love. So, you know, you go to the pictures a lot. That's what I did. But some uh, some movies that uh, caught my attention from 1986. Was it not a great year for movies? It was one of the best, I reckon. Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, up there. Um, Platoon, which I, I always thought was a great movie. Uh, Top Gun, which I'll put my hand up right now and say I've never seen and have no desire to see. Oh, I've seen part of and disliked immensely. Yep. Uh, I thought I would. Uh, one which I'm going to leave to you, and, and I concur on your choice. I, I agree. Very good movie. Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which uh, sort of gained more in um, popularity as the years went on. Became Magnif- a bit of a cult classic. Mag- real cult classic. Gee, yeah. Unlucky. Something really good from my perspective had to beat that. I love Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Yeah. I, I, I don't love it that much, but I do like it. Uh, Anyone? Huh? And. That's one of my favourite scenes ever in a movie with the, that boring history teacher. Oh, yeah, the teacher. Everybody yeah. sleep on the desk drooling, and he asks, anyone? <laughs> anyone? Uh, massive Australian movie, of course, Crocodile Dundee. Uh, did enormous business worldwide. Uh, great movie, uh, basketball movie with Gene Hackman, Hoosiers. Great movie, isn't it? Uh, Woody Allen, uh, the more serious Woody Allen, Hannah and Her Sisters. Um, this is where he started to lose me a bit, but I didn't mind Hannah and Her Sisters. And a couple more. Oh, that's a great movie. It talks about the, you know, the injustice of life. In life, we believe, you know, karma will get you. But not Hannah and Her Sisters talks about the reality that the the arsehole sometimes ends up on top. A uh, couple of other big Australian movies, Malcolm, which I always really liked, uh, Colin Freels, and uh, Dogs in Space, of course. Uh, Michael Richard, Hutchins? Yeah, about, about, well, not, you know, about sort of people living in Richmond, but uh, Michael Hutchins in a lead role there, Richard Lowenstein directed. Uh, I it, quite like that. Was there some filming in the... MCG car park of that? Uh, Geez, you know what? I I still haven't seen it since I originally saw it, so I can't go back that far. But lots of filming around the pokey inner suburban streets of Richmond where all my siblings lived at some stage, so quite enjoyed that. But my pick uh, from 1986, I love this film, and I'm a sentimental soul at heart, and I, I told... Uh, David and Sam last night that I was going with this film and uh, one of them's 20 and one's 17 and they rolled their eyes rather predictably because they think I'm far too sentimental but this is a classic rites of passage film uh, beautiful story based on a Stephen King novel or novella The Body and uh, do you know where I'm going with this? No, not yet. Uh, Rob Reiner direction set in Oregon in the US in 1959 about a group of boys who oh, set off gr- on a hike to find a dead body. Yeah, this is a beautiful movie. And the movie is called Stand By Me. And I absolutely love this movie. Always makes me laugh and cry a bit. And uh, the proverbial rites of passage movie uh, the cast, the characters and cast, Gordy, played by Will Wheaton, Chris Chambers, played by the sadly departed River Phoenix, Teddy, played by Corey Feldman, the ubiquitous Corey Feldman. Is, and, he, is he alive, Corey Feldman? Uh, yes, he is. Corey Hayne Hi, is the one who passed on. Uh, and Vern, the sort of comic member of the four boys, played by Jerry O'Connell. Uh, if you haven't seen it or don't know about it, um, I think it's Vern over here is his older brother who's part of a gang of hoods 
talking about having seen a dead body uh, up in the forest and they don't want to report it because uh, they'd stolen a car and thought they'd get in trouble. He overhears them, tells his mates, and the boys set off on an adventure to attempt to find uh, this body of the poorly deceased young boy. Uh, Hilarity uh, and much uh, meaningful uh, musing on life ensues uh, ensues as they uh, go through a variety of adventures and misadventures. But it's it's just beautifully written, and the the dialogue between the kids and um, you know they're alternately sort of musing on really stupid sort of pop culture sort of debates, and then talking about far more heavy stuff. Um, sort of a bit like it's like a, a earlier version of clerks really not quite as debased um but uh yeah look i i I think all the actors in this i mean river phoenix was a a great young actor what a what a loss he was uh ditto will wheaton and i quite like as we corey feldman as we speak joaquin phoenix prepares to win the academy award he's a lay down mazair today to be named best actor for the joker and we'll uh find that out shortly of course um, uh, narrator, it's so the whole thing is told in flashback mode. It starts with Richard Dreyfus uh, in the present day, and he's just read uh, a newspaper story about his boyhood mate Chris Chambers uh, uh, tragically being killed in a restaurant, uh, attempting to intervene in the fight. And uh, there's the whole thing is basically a flashback of this huge adventure they went on. Um, it's yeah. Look, it's it's pretty uncomplicated, but it's beautifully done. Uh, there's a great soundtrack, of course, with music from that era. Uh, Kiefer Sutherland, by the way, plays one of the the cheap dime store hood, as Gordy calls him in the climax of the film. Yeah, I, I love that film. Never get tired of watching it. Stand by me. Your film. There are certain movies that change the way I or people look at life, and this was my foray into disturbing movies. I I dabbled with disturbing movies previously. I don't think we're ever going to do 1939 as a year, but there was a movie called Freaks that really just jaw-dropping to watch it. And I remember watching it and never seeing the world quite the same. And then this movie took me somewhere else as its director wanted it to do. Directed by the controversial but brilliant David Lynch, who gave us a razorhead and would give us Mulholland Drive. This movie takes makes much of being set in just middle-class American suburbia and behind the picket fence, behind the... and set in the 1950s or thereabouts, 50s or 60s, maybe 60s, behind the smiling mother and you know preparing cookies for her kids coming home from school and dad coming home from a day at work with a big pay packet so they could buy the latest mod con it tells you that behind every picket fence there's a story and some of those stories are very disturbing and the movie is called blue velvet Mm, another cult classic really real cult classic and disturbing it was because the son of one of these picket fence ideal suburban houses, played by a little lone Kyle McLaughlin, comes upon a woman in distress, older than him. He's sort of your graduating high school hero with the beautiful blonde girlfriend at the soda shop drinking 
malted milks, everything's going to be perfect. They'll go on and recreate the life that was so perfect for them until he comes across Isabella Rossellini, who is playing a woman in distress, much older than Kyle, beautiful nevertheless. And she opens the door onto an extremely disturbing, unusual world. And the star of that unusual world is a man by the name of Frank, played by Dennis Hopper. He carts around a tank that we can only assume is filled with nitrous oxide to give him regular hits. He's got a couple of goons, maybe not... um, what, What were the goons in Stand By Me? What was he? What was he? A, 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 a cheap, cheap dime store hood. Yeah, these weren't cheap dime store hoods. These were threatening individuals. There's now, I can't remember. Uh, Dean Stockwell, I think his name is, plays a small role in it. But there is sexuality overlaid. There's danger. Uh, Frank talks about uh, that. Is Dennis Hopper's character talks menacingly. Uh, to Kyle McLaughlin, this young character who's snooping around trying to find who's bashing up this older woman, this beautiful woman. And Frank tells him very menacingly, do you know what a love letter is? It's a bullet straight from my gun to your heart. He takes him on a wild ride that starts with a famous question. Do you drink, do you want a beer? And he, and Kyle nervously answers whatever his character's name is, says yes. And he goes, what beer do you drink? And he goes, Budweiser. And he goes, F Budweiser. And he pulls out the working class beer. Pabst. Pabst Blue Ribbon. And I was so taken by the movie that I actually found a place in Melbourne that had Pabst Blue Ribbon. Me and my (laughs) mates loved that movie so much that we had a showing of it one night and I pulled out a slab of Pabst Blue Ribbon. (laughs) Now in America, Pabst Blue Ribbon is one of the cheapest beers you can find. And back in 1986 or 87, when I found it, it cost me like $80 to get a slab of it. But we were just rejoicing drinking this sort of flat American beer. It's a great movie. It includes uh, this scene, this disturbing scene where Dennis Hopper, Frank, covers himself in ladies' lipstick and kisses Kyle and sings very hauntingly. He he sings um, uh, Roy Orbison but mimes to it, and it's all very strange and just tells you that behind the picket fence, every family, every everybody has a story that's far more disturbing than what, you know, the world on face value, don't take the world as it is. It's very creepy. It's, a, it's, it's very creepy. Yeah, good, no, good summation, uh, good summation. All right, TV. Uh, yeah, I thought reasonably slim pickings for TV in 1986. But I find every year a slim pickings. Yeah, it hasn't been great for about 40 years, really. Uh, but here's a few that were uh, big. Anyway, Alf, of course, the lovable alien. Um, With all the urban myths that surround it. And, uh, yes, the other, uh, the other ones that I came up with actually were all Australian. So Flying Doctors started in 1986. The 7.30 report, uh, which for a long time was the pick of the uh, diminishing quality-wise, diminishing pool of current affairs shows. And uh, the launch of the Degeneration Oh, that's good. Um, who, uh, yeah, I, I left that one alone though because I want to touch on them uh, with the Late Show, one of my favourite 
sort of sketch comedy shows of all time, which came a few years later. But uh, all the uh, messes, Sitch and uh, Malloy and Chilaro and Gleisner, etc., got their and launch. Kennedy? And Kennedy. Uh, I think Shane she Kennedy? joined a bit later. Okay. Uh, a few of them came yeah, in yep. various times. But Degeneration got their uh, start in 1986. However, I've gone with one of the... Um, I, I, yeah, I think one of the first, not certainly not one of the first um, uh, dramas about law, but uh, in terms of um, one which examined issues as well as uh, the personal lives of the protagonists. And it definitely sucked me in finally. I, I was absolutely a regular viewer of this show, and it seems like so long ago now I'm talking about L.A. Law which ran from 1986 to 94, 172 episodes. Um, one of the earlier works, I think, of uh, directed by Stephen Bocco. Uh, is it Bocco or Bocho? I think Bocco. Um, but uh, concerning the activities of a leading American law firm called Mackenzie, Brackman, Cheney and Kuzak. And uh, who are the characters? Uh, does it ring a bell? If it doesn't, well, maybe these characters will. Arnie Becker, the womanising uh, super lawyer played by Corbin Burnson, who was big at the time. Uh, Harry Hamlin, who was a bit of a young uh, firebrand, played Michael Kuzak. The boss of the firm, uh, the wisely old Richard Dysart, playing Leland McKenzie. Uh, Douglas Brackman was the slightly troubled and irascible um, member of the Gang of Lawyers, uh, played by uh, Alan Rutchins. Uh Stuart Markowitz, played by Michael Tucker. and Kelsey, played by Jill Eikenberry. And uh, Roxanne, the lovable heart of gold PA, played by uh, Susan Rutman. And, uh, oh, of course, I've missed... Um, uh, a man whose role gave rise to uh, one of my favourite Martin Malloy sketches about the Jimmy Smith's Electricity Corporation, where you can light your room with the steamy incandescence of Jimmy Smith's, who plays the hot Latino lawyer Victor Sefuentes. Uh, do you ever watch LA Law, Finding? I can proudly say... You didn't? I did not see a single episode, and that cast list is the greatest mound of of never was we're going to be's <laughs> you know stalled careers and who's that's what a that is a mountain of crap okay well i enjoyed it and um it dealt with at the time dealt with issues that were seen as a bit sort of cutting edge you know homosexuality and uh, what else to talk about? You know, abortion, um, gender issues, blah blah blah. You know, we are talking a long time ago, thirty-five years. Anyway, yeah. Look at the heart of it; it was basically a soap, but it was a, a more intelligent soap, and it ran for a long time, and I liked it. Did you used to have to rush home to watch LA Law because a lot of people did that? Uh, it was on later at night. I think it was eight thirty, nine thirty slot. Um, there would have been a whole trail of things that I watched regularly, of course, back in the days when TV was watchable. All right, uh, your TV show. Very quirky show. Started in the USA in 1986, ran for four years, and was the forerunner of one of my favourite TV shows called It's the Gary Shandling Show. Ah, yes. With the very... Was that the forerunner or the show? The forerunner. Okay. The show that I would love was the Larry Sanders show. Ah, yes, of course. But It's Gary Shandling or... 
the Gary, I think it was called the Gary Shandling Show. It had a great theme called "This is the theme to the Gary Shandling Show." It's Gary Gary Shandling Show. It's, it's Gary Shandling Show. It was very different to any. It wasn't a sitcom. It was a a comedian basically that let you into his life, and you'd go into his uh, sort of the living room of his. Um, I think he lived in a sort of one of those Los Angeles type. What what were those? Co- Living condo, condos, exactly right, exactly right. So you went into the living room of the condo. The next door neighbour would come by, good looking, um, but no sexual tension there. Much, his best mate had come by, always talking about dates that they were going on. But he regularly broke the fourth wall. He would step out of the condominium and start talking to the audience, and you'd get a pan of the camera and see the audience members, and he'd talk directly down the camera to you, the viewer. So it broke some of those conventions of normal television. Gary Shandling's character was Gary Shandling the person, a comedian full of paranoia and nervousness, and that was better played out by Larry Sanders, who was his version of Johnny Carson or probably more accurately Jay Leno. Started to be teased in its Gary Shandling, and you saw the genesis. And some of it was brilliantly funny. A lot of it, a lot of misses, but many hits that would later form beautifully in the Larry Sanders show. And and typically, it was Channel Ten, wasn't it? That was on, I reckon. Maybe yes. Well, Late, uh, my memory of it is that they didn't have the faintest idea what to do with it, so Correct. it got stuck on inevitably late at night, it was in, in, an ever-changing time slot. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, just about anything that's quality TV. You, uh, you could, how could you tell quality TV on Australian free-to-air television? Uh, the show would be constantly shuffled around various time slots, not promoted properly, and would be yanked off air far too quickly. Far too challenging for Australian TV executives to consume and give a proper placement to. All right, no, good choice. And that, that is a show I sort of feel like, Revisiting, um, now currently working my way through virtually the entire Seinfeld catalogue on your recommendation, so I might make that my next one. All right, 1986, what a year it was for music, movies and TV, and that sets us up beautifully, finally, to do one thing, and that is to rant. On Footyology, the rant of... All right, I'm ready to rant, Finey, and uh, a, a bit of a preface to this one. Uh, I am not taking the piss. This one is another serious one. Um, started thinking about this, and I thought, yeah, I reckon that's rant-worthy. So uh, let's see what you think. So rant in a serious manner, one, two, three. I'm pissed off with sports administrators, Finey, a class of people who, for the most part these days, seem to have all the vision and oral perception of Helen Keller. Now, my case in point in this rant is going to be cricket, but it could be golf, it could be tennis, it could be just about any sport which offers even the minutest chance of someone somewhere making a buck and some pen pusher in an office adding another self-promoting line to their professional CV. Look, we love sport as much as anyone, but we also know when enough is enough, and we're at least conscious of that old and very applicable adage of killing the goose that laid the golden egg. Someone, or dare I say it, most people at Cricket Australia don't and aren't. And Exhibit A has to be the Big Bash, which somehow after nine seasons is already seemingly on the nose with the serious punters. The novelty value of T20 has long worn off, but less than a decade since its inception, 
This competition should be fostering a deeper connection between genuine fans of the game and the teams they watch. Instead, it appears quite the reverse. Why? Well, there's several reasons, but by far the biggest surely has to be taking the product from an attractive bite-sized snack of cricket to a multi-course banquet, which in the end has to be forced down diners' throats. There's too much of it. Way too much. The first season of BBL in 2011-12 had a total of 31 games, including finals. This season, nine had 61, just on double, in a schedule which by necessity was spread over eight weeks, no longer a holiday attraction for families and kids, but finishing well after those kids were back at school which goes a long way to explaining the poultry crowd of 13,067 who turned up at the MCG last Thursday night for the Melbourne Stars' knockout final against Sydney Thunder. Nonetheless, considering it was a final, the comparison with the incredible 80,000-plus who turned up for a Stars v Renegades game only four years ago is stark indeed. What so many sports officials just never seem to grasp is the importance of room to breathe in the sporting landscape to reflect on what we've seen, to build anticipation around what we will see, to allow the supporter at least five seconds in which to ponder the importance of the teams they follow to their existence. Yes, that means sometimes less is more, but when sport is considered and marketed merely as an alternative form of entertainment, not something which runs far deeper through our veins than the latest Hollywood blockbuster, those connections can never be as strong nor as sustainable through the inevitable peaks and troughs of not just a club, but an entire sport's existence. The Melbourne Stars finals record is the sort of stuff which makes the collie wobbles look like a blip on the radar. But let's be honest, Finey, and you said it earlier, do we really think even the hardest core of their supporters had their weekends ruined by Saturday night's grand final defeat? We also know that cricket's head honchos won't be too fussed by the attendance figures for this season if the glut of T20 games has achieved even respectable TV audiences and brought in more advertising and sponsorship dollars. Sadly, though, those of us who've been around the block a bit know what the long-term implications of that are, and that's matches played in increasingly empty stadiums for people who don't actually care too much what happens. As far as I'm concerned, that's not sport, but just a slightly more competitive version of a cheap TV game show. That is spot on. I think in years to come, the BBL experience of great success and public interest at the outset being met by administrators greedily trying to cash in by increasing the number of games so the product gets more of a revenue from TV and they got a big TV deal and it was fought over by a couple of networks which is what you want will stand as a sort of a warning to greedy administrators maybe not now but somewhere in the future of killing the goose that laid the golden egg I I do believe that I do take you to task on one small element of your rant Mm -hmm. and that was throwing golf into the mix because We've just seen the completion of the successful Vic Vic Open, the only major event, and it is a major event because it's an LPGA event that integrates male and female golf in the one tournament. And apparently the rest of the world, Europe, America, were all down here looking at how the model works. And somehow it's successful and it's 
it's actually very good to watch. Okay. All right. No, I'm, I'm happy to take that on board. All right. I'm counting you in. Three, two, one, rant. AFLW haters, piss off. Don't turn on. Don't complain. And most of all, don't fill the airwaves on talkback radio with your bias, with your with your hates, and do not fill chat rooms with the sidebar issue of prejudices against women and the type of females that play AFLW. A fair critique of the game is fair. Nobody says that somebody shouldn't be allowed to comment on a game that they have watched and talk about it in a critical manner. But for that to stretch to the type of females that play the game, the type of people that watch it, the type appeal that uh, the type of person that the game appeals to simply reaches into the prejudices of those people providing the labels. Look, didn't I previously say that I proudly have never watched an episode of LA Law? Well, I can tell you, I didn't spend each week between episodes calling Talkback Radio, telling people, the world, how much of a disgusting show it was and how they were foolhardy to watch it. I simply didn't turn on and watch it. And that is the advice, best advice given to those people who do not enjoy women's Australian rules football. Don't watch it. Find something else to watch. If you're in front of the TV, there are sporting alternatives. If you're out and about, there are many radio alternatives. Simply don't be part of the sport. But to make it your life's mission to bring AFLW down by constantly appealing or talking on radio or heading to chat rooms shows a far greater and deeper prejudice that I'm sure stretches well beyond the football field and the women that play on it. Here, here. Couldn't agree more, and I've got two words to say uh, in explanation as to why that happens. Male insecurity. You know what? It's exactly what it is, Fanny. It's these blokes who weren't good enough to play at a decent level themselves, and they see these women getting exposure and getting a bit of uh, backslapping going on, and it bruises their tiny, fragile male ego. Here's what I try and tell people. I was at the Olympic Games in 2000, and Mark is clearly in my top three sporting moments live of all time, being there when Kathy Freeman won the 400-metre gold. I was lifted out of my seat, standing and cheering, without consciously knowing that I'd ever stood up. Did I turn around afterwards and say, that's pathetic, that's four seconds slower than the men? We know that women don't have the physical power of the males, So they play a slightly different sport in AFLW. All right, that's me defending the sport. But if you don't like it, don't watch it. And you know what shocks me most? That male insecurity uh, stems from some sort of, I don't know, it's it's a deep-seated resentment of women's rights and what they have achieved in the last two decades. I think you call it sexism. in, In stepping towards equality. What completely has me thrown is how many women jump on the band anti-AFLW bandwagon. And there are many almost apologising for their husbands, for their partners, and, and stepping in line with them. Yeah, it is shit. Oh, it's hopeless. As though they are called by duty to support their better halves 
view on life. To be honest, you know what? If you think you've got a better half, you probably will step in line anyhow. I, I'm shocked how many women also really aim vitriol at AFLW. As I said, you don't have to like it. Just leave it alone. All right. Uh, no, good rant. And on that same theme, there is a really good uh, piece I posted on the Footyology website, footyology.com.au, last night by Ned Barn who uh, is a very talented young journalist uh, reading the news up in the Albury-Wodonga region, writing for Footyology, and of course, and I don't think he'll mind me saying that, the uh, nephew of Richmond tough man Neil Baum. Really? Yeah, he's the uh, son of Craig Baum, of course, a very accomplished footballer himself. Played with Norwood. Yeah, and did he come I think here he and did play come some here and played for No, but I think he played for Richmond. Yeah, yeah, he did. He had yeah. a season or two at Richmond where he might have played a game or two. But involved in a very famous punch-up with Port Adelaide full forward Tim Evans prior to the start yeah. of the 1984 grand final whilst the national anthem was being played. Did Tim Evans play for Geelong? He did, and then went to Port and became a... a a huge goal kicker, but he was a big leaper, Tim Evans. Yeah, and he had a beard. But um, they used to stand in position for the national anthem, right? So well, they in their in their in their uh, position, full, full back. Yeah, so that's um, asking for a fight. So Craig Baum and Tim Evans are standing in the goal square whilst Advanced Australia Fair is playing, belting the absolute crap out of each other. Anyway, that, no, Ned. That's um, great. Ned is a ripper and uh, he's become a father recently. Very, very talented journalist. So uh, it's a great read. Jump on footyology.com.au and have a read of it. Big show today, Finey. We've taken too long as per usual, but there was a lot to cram in there. Thanks for your input. Thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, big plug for our sponsors to finish. 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. If you're hankering for a burger that has been known to be the best, rated the best. Matt Preston said it was the best. 81 years in service. Andrews Hamburgers and West Point Properties. That's our great friend Nick Spartel's building company. He's doing it independently and brilliantly. Give him a call or head to the website. Did Matt Preston really say that yep. about Andrews? Yep. And he didn't uh, spill a drop of sauce on his cravat. His cravat remained... Juice-free. Free because it's a one-bite, stay-in-the-mouth hamburger extravaganza. All right, thanks, guys. Uh, thanks for your company. We'll see you again next week with more of the same wackiness and zaniness. Uh, but to leave you this week, 1986 was the year we revisited. It was my choice, finally, so I get to choose the song. I'm bleeding because I would have loved what's inside a girl, so make it a good one. Uh, no, it is a good one. This is actually, I kid you not, one of my top, I think I ranked it number three in my favourite songs of all time. It's certainly not a rocker. It is incredibly atmospheric, beautiful guitar interplay, beautiful lyrics, very mystical feel to it. It is the opening track off the church's 1986 album, Hey Day. A beautiful song. Turn it up, Carl, and let everyone have a good listen to it. Wonderful little homemade film clip to it, too, on YouTube, if you want to have a look. I speak, of course, of Myrrh. We'll see you next week.
Jericho City Camel dust heralds our arrival New cries beneath the drunken moon All along we are flattened again In the slipstream full of the federal men Plummeted in some seamless night Down here to earth, it's hopeless then Apache coming in the boiling crowd We never got to meet you last time We're interrupted by the telephone You didn't think they were invented then Oh no, we need miracles We need more wine and gold We need slaves and roads and personal favors We need microphones and manifolds How can you be so invisible? Give me the nerves to see Thank you. 